Let's pray together. God, with great confidence looking to you, we ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give him to us without limit, which is to say, give us more of yourself and do a miracle in our eyes and ears and hearts in such a way that we see you for who you are and value you and worship you and love you and the things of you and that you do something in our lives that we pursue hard after the things that you would have for us, even unity as we talk about it today. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How was church today? That is a question I'm sure you've been asked before. Maybe you'll be asked it today. So you'll go to lunch at some relative's house and they'll ask you, how was church today? Or maybe you'll be talking to a coworker this week about your weekend and they'll say, oh, you went to church? How was that? Well, out of all the answers you might give to that question, I want to ask you to consider saying this next time you're asked. How was church? It was like the precious oil on the head, on the beard of Aaron flowing down on his robes and his collars. Or how was church, you might ask, it was like the dew of Hermon, which falls on Mount Zion. Now, you're, you're chuckling because that's an odd way to describe what it's like to be with God's people. That's the church, not a building of people. And yet that's how David describes his experience of being with the people of God in Psalm 133. So it was just read for you, but if you'll turn your Bible, you'll see it on the screen. You'll see that Psalm 133, uh, if, if you turn there, what you'll notice is the psalm begins with a heading. So there's a superscription at the top in all caps or in italics in your Bible, and it'll say a psalm of ascents. And what you'll notice is actually if you turn right from Psalm 133 or turn left from Psalm 133, it's parked in a neighborhood where all the titles of all the Psalms from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 135 have that same superscription, a Psalm of Ascents, meaning from Psalm 120 to 135, since these are songs, it's essentially the soundtrack you would play on your way to church. Right, So you'd get into your minivan and you'd play Psalm 120 to Psalm 135 on your way to church. Literally, as the people of God, the Jews, would leave the various neighborhoods of Israel and make their common pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the mountain, to God's holy temple, these would be the songs that they sang and the songs that they heard along the way. And so, reflecting on what it was like to be in God's presence in God's place, with God's people, as standing as one among them, David says, behold, right, that word meaning see, look, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And that's when you understand that David's not just reflecting on being pre physically present with the church, that he showed up in the building, but rather He's reflecting on what it was like to stand in unity with God's people. What it was experienced, what his experience was in being in unity with his church. And in describing that unity, he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You can hear from that word brothers, the language of family. 
And so David's writing in a time and in a day when it wasn't uncommon for brothers to live next to each other. Meaning literally, in a family, you'd have one son grow up and another son grow up. And as these various sons grow up, they'd get married, they'd have kids, but they'd all do so in close proximity to each other. Meaning they'd all still live on the family land. And so you were going to undoubtedly be around family. So in family back then, in David's time, wasn't just mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. Family was your grandparents and your cousins and your aunts and your uncles. It wasn't uncommon for 75 different people to be a family living in close proximity. I mean, for some of you, just the thought of 75 family members gives you the sweats. You're, you're nervous thinking about it. You can imagine that if 75 of your relatives were living within a few blocks of each other, oh man, you can imagine, you can almost guarantee that there's going to be drama and conflict and hurts and misunderstandings and slights. And listen, the Bible is not naive or unaware about how difficult family dynamics can be. In fact, just think of some of the first families in the Bible. I mean, you literally have to go no further than literally the first set of brothers. The first set of brothers, the first human brothers were Cain and Abel, and with them came the origin, the very genesis of sibling rivalry. One literally killed the other. And then you get just a few pages into the story before you get another set of brothers named Jacob and Esau. And the younger one is a scoundrel that steals his older brother's blessings. And literally, they hate each other so that Jacob has to run so that what happened to Abel doesn't happen to him. And then you don't get any further than one generation later. And Jacob's got 12 sons, one of them being a boy named Joseph. And 10 of them plot to throw this boy Joseph into a well and then eventually sell him into slavery. I mean, you get the idea. You don't get any further than literally the opening families of the Bible before you see how much this thing breaks down. You, you, you get to the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, and it's not like just because Jesus comes, suddenly everyone is at peace, and all family relationships are in perfect harmony. It's not like just because Jesus has come or put his spirit, now brothers and sisters, not even beyond the family, but in Jesus' church, are suddenly healed of all division or disunity. No, in fact, when you see Jesus' first 12 disciples... You're going to hear stories of them bickering with each other, disagreements about who's better and who's not, and who gets whose name right next to Jesus's. You're going to see disagreement and fractions, and Jesus is going to have to address it. Or even when you remember when we were preaching through the book of Acts. Do you remember in the book of Acts, I mean, the Spirit of God dwelt in them, and there was this dynamic duo, Paul and Barnabas, like Batman and Robin. And yet you remember that in one section, these two have such a severe disagreement that they part ways and never again rejoin in ministry. I mean, they both loved the Lord. They both were pillars of Jesus' church. They both had the Spirit of God, and yet such a severe disagreement that they go separate ways. I mean, because of that, because I bet you could add to that examples, personal examples, maybe even painful examples of how that kind of disunity and division can be found in your families among your siblings, among close relatives, or certainly maybe even stories of your own if you grew up in the church. Because then we all know how easily relationships can fracture and splinter and break apart. When you actually do experience unity, you get why David would say, behold, 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Because you know full well from personal experience, from church experience, from biblical stories, you know how fragile relationships can be. You know how easily they can splinter. And because of that, when you actually do experience unity, when there is any measure of unity at all, you know it's, it's to right to say, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Notice even the words that David uses. He says, good and pleasant. That's important because you know how things can be good for you but not pleasant, right? Like kale. That's good, but it is not pleasant, right? But on the other hand, you know that there can be things that are pleasant but not good for you, like cocoa pebbles. I could eat cocoa pebbles every single day, but if you look on the ingredients of cocoa pebbles, it just says death. That's what it is. It's a bowl of death covered in chocolate. It is so pleasant, but it is not good for you. But when you have the rare combination of something that is good and pleasant, meaning what you ought to have is what you want to have, that's heaven. I mean, where the rare times where what is demanded it is what is delighted, where your duty is your delight, where what's required is what you rejoice in, that rare combination is glory, it's heaven, and that's unity. It's what we ought to have because it's good for us, but it's what we want to have because it's pleasant to us. And David is saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's what we want to have, and it's what we ought to have. It's what God wants for us, and it's what we want for ourselves. And so he says, you know what it's like? You know what it's like when brothers and sisters dwell together at Seven Mile Road Church in unity? It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That's verse 2. And at that point, you want to say, okay, David, you lost us again, right? We were tracking with you on unity, on kale and cocoa pebbles. We were with you. But now, what is this description of oil? And how is this oil? It's running down everywhere. But, but here's what you have to understand. In that culture, oil was poured on the head in special ceremonies, at moments of huge celebration. In fact, what he has specifically in mind here is when oil was poured on Aaron, that's Moses, if you know that from that name, Moses' brother, was installed as the first high priest of Israel. And when he was installed as high priest, oil was poured on his head. Not just oil. In fact, let me take you quickly to Exodus 30 and give you the background on this. Exodus 30, verse 22 and following says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, catch this, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much as that, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. Then skip down to verse 30. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, and, they, and then that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be too holy to you. 
Here's what I want you to get. You get the description. David, when he thinks of what it's like to dwell in unity, he thinks of this holy, sacred, fragrant oil. Right? You heard it there. You got some sweet aromatic cane and, and cinnamon and spices. It's almost like we're in fall now, right? But the season of fall, you know it's just a season, but it has an aroma to it. Meaning you think of pumpkin spice and you think of spiced apple. Well, David's saying, when I think of unity, the scent of God's people is like a fragrant sacred oil. Meaning unity is the aroma of God's church. That, that what he's begging God for, what he wants for his people, is not the foul odor of division. And not the stench of disunity. Not the foul smell of gossip or slander or backbiting. What he thinks, when the church walks by, you smell unity. That's the fragrance that lingers. That, that it's a distinct smell that when these people walk by, you know they've walked by because unity is the aroma of God's people. But here, for him, notice that for David, it's not even the oil. It's what happens to the oil that's his focus. Look again back at verse 2. He says, precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Meaning that the oil that's poured on Aaron isn't just a drop. No, it's in excess so that it runs down Aaron's beard and runs past his beard onto the collar of his robes and runs down his robes. And now you've got this picture where in your head you've got Aaron. Aaron, and he's standing in his priestly robes. Okay, so Aaron, background on him. He's the high priest, meaning that you couldn't just have a million Israelites go up to God. So you had one man appointed as the high priest, and he was going to sort of be the middleman between God and the people. He was going to mediate between God and the people. So he was going to speak on God's behalf to the people and represent the people on behalf to God. Right? So he was going to go. So this was a really significant guy because he literally, one man, stood between God and the whole people. And so to represent that, that fact that he was going to speak on God's behalf and represent on the people's behalf, he was decked out in special clothes. He had these robes. So the high priest's robes, it had, for example, on the shoulders, two precious stones. And on those stones were inscribed the 12 tribes, six on each, of Israel. And then on his chest, he wore a breastplate with 12 precious stones, each one having the name of Israel on him. So now here's the picture. The holy, fragrant oil of God, which is so sacred that there can be none like it. You shall not make another one of this kind of composition. And it shall not be poured out on any ordinary person. It's reserved only for the high priest. But now this oil is poured out onto his head in such a way that it drenches his beard, and now it flows to the collar of his robes, and now is the blessing of God's oil being poured out even on the names that he bears on his shoulders, and he carries on his heart. I mean, do you get the, the picture is, here through this high priest is mediated God's rich, abundant blessings so that it drenches and covers all of God's people. Which makes you go, this high priest must be some special man. That upon him the blessing of God would flow unto all the people. Except, if you know anything about Aaron, 
you know that this brother was far from perfect. In fact, Aaron's resume starts with, helped Israel build a golden calf so that everybody in Israel could worship it and fall down and bow before it. That's the guy who's mediating between God and man? That's the guy who is standing on behalf of God's people? You know what the problem is? Aaron needs a high priest. Aaron needs somebody to represent Aaron before God. And so the whole Bible is the story of Aaron is just a shadow. Aaron's just getting you ready for the fact that you need a truer and better high priest. And later in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews will come and say, that's Jesus. Jesus is the high priest, the one who is 100% God and 100% man, fully God and fully man, such that he really can come and speak to us. And when he does, it is God speaking to us because he's fully God. And such that he can represent us to God because he really is man. I mean, there's no one like him. Fully God and fully man, that he can be our one and true and only mediator so that he can represent us to God and speak on God's behalf to us. And now the Bible says Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he's the high priest who went before God, not with the blood of a bull or a goat. No, he literally went into God's presence on behalf of God's people, offering himself as the sacrifice. He essentially goes to God and says, here, this body is the body that will be broken for them. And here, this blood is the blood that's been poured out for their atonement so that when Jesus died as our true and better high priest, Jesus was able to actually mediate the two of us so that God and man could be united. And when we were actually united with God through Jesus' death, we were also united with everyone else that Jesus united to God. In fact, that's the metaphors of the New Testament. The metaphors of the New Testament is because of Jesus' death, God is now our king. That makes all of us part of the kingdom, meaning citizens, and we're fellow citizens with one another. Or metaphors like, listen, Jesus is now the head of a body, and we're all parts of it. That means that just like you have a connection to the head, you have a connection to each other. You can't be a finger that enjoys being connected to the head without also knowing that you're connected to the toe. And so the point is, we are now inseparably connected to each other. And listen, that's not hypothetical. That's not just a word picture. Because if we are truly connected with Jesus, then we are truly connected with each other too. If one is hypothetical, then both are hypothetical. So you can't have a real relationship with your head and sort of a picture relationship with the fingers. No, we're really part of his body, really, truly connected to each other. Or metaphors like we're in a family. And so now God is our father, and all of God's other children are our siblings. All these metaphors to say, through our high priest Jesus, we have been connected, we have been united. Unity. We have unity with God and with each other. And now... It's like the good and pleasant blessing of unity flows down through Jesus onto the people that he carries on his shoulders and onto the people that he bears on his heart. And now your name is inscribed there and your name is written here and you get the blessing of God and the blessing of his unity. You see how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters at Seven Mile Road Church dwell together in unity. It's like oil 
flowing down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, flowing down on the robes and on his cause. But it's not just like that. It's like the dew of Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. And now we want to go, okay, David, we lost you again. We were with you with good and pleasant. We were with you through the oil, but now we lost him again. But here's the thing. What is foreign to us would have been familiar to the people David was writing to. They would have heard this and they would have immediately known. Okay, David just said, Mount Hermon. And they would have immediately known, like, like you know Mount Everest. They would have known Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain in Israel, way up in the north, towering some 9,000 feet. And then they would have heard, okay, Mount Hermon has dew on it. That makes sense. It's 9,000 feet in the air. It gets like 65 inches of rain a year, way up on high. And then they would have known, and Mount Zion, 200 miles south, a quarter of the size. But what's the picture? The picture is that the showers pour on Mount Hermon with such abundance that it flows down from there all the way till it reaches 200 miles south into not the mountain highlands, but in the city of Jerusalem, so that now even Zion is drenched with that dew. Can you picture it? Dew in the Old Testament was a sign of, like, blessing, right? In a dry and arid land, you can imagine that the morning dew was so needed. In fact, when one of the patriarchs in Genesis was going to bless his sons, he blessed him with grain and with wine and with dew, Literally a sign of blessing, of a good thing from heaven. And now you've got Mount Hermon, which has plenty of it, way up high in the north. But there's so much of it that it runs down all the way to Mount Zion. It's almost like the oil that doesn't just stay atop Aaron's head but is poured out in such excess that it runs down his robes. And now you've got literally showers of blessing. And these showers of blessing run down from Hermon all the way to Zion. It's like one preacher said, if you've ever stood up away from the city in the mountains, and you've breathed in that mountain air and gone out on an early morning when the dew was still on the ground, and if you could almost bottle up that mountain air, and then the next time you found yourself in center city with traffic abounding, you can uncork that thing and breathe it in. I mean, that's the picture here. That the blessing of God and the goodness and pleasantness of unity has flown from on high till it meets us in the ordinary bustle of our life, right in the middle of the city. In fact, the point here, what we should notice about this unity, is the way that the psalm describes it over and over again, is to make no doubt that this unity comes from God above. We might not see it in the English, but can I show it to you in the original language? In the original language, three times you actually get the same phrase that goes down, that goes down. For us, it says running down from, then it changes. But in the original language, it says this. It's the precious oil on the head that goes down upon the beard. You see it? It's like the upon the beard of Aaron that goes down upon the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon that goes down upon Mount Zion. I mean, three times, over and over again, the same exact phrase to say the direction of this blessing is clear, isn't it? This good and pleasant blessing of unity is from above and comes down onto us like oil that flows, that, like dew 
that pours. That means this for us. Okay, Seven Mile Road? It means that any measure of unity at all that we have enjoyed for the last 10 years is a blessing that has come down from God. Any measure, we are far from perfect, but any measure at all, because you and I know of the fragility of relationships, because you and I know how quickly brothers can fracture, because you and I know of stories personally, church-wide, biblically, of how easy it is, because you and I know our own sinfulness and tendencies, any measure of unity at all that we have enjoyed for the last decade is solely the blessing of Almighty God. It is not because you and I just happen to have the kinds of personalities that click. It's not because we've architected or rigged this thing so that it works. It's not because we just happen to be the kind of people that are easy to get along with and we're just all so lovable. We have a vast number of backgrounds. We're in different socioeconomic statuses, different in our ethnicities, different in our stories, different in our politics. Any measure of unity at all that we have enjoyed is from Almighty God. And reflecting then with me, whether you've been here 10 years, whether you've been here 10 months or 10 days, what we have enjoyed, though far from perfect, isn't it good and pleasant? Wouldn't you say with me, what we've enjoyed is good and pleasant? And if you would say that with me, then I think you will also say with me, God, we want more. And God, we need more. We need more because it's good for us. And we want more because it's pleasant to us. God, if you're going to give us 10 more days or 10 more months or 10 more years, we want more unity in the days to come. And if you'll say that with me, I want you to hear what we've said already is unity is not ours to create, right? It doesn't spring up from us and go up or out. Unity comes from God. So our task is not to create unity because unity doesn't come from us. It comes from above like oil, like dew. It's what Jesus, our high priest, died for. It's what Jesus, our high priest, prayed for. The night before he died, he literally prayed, Father, make them one as you and I are one. So the kind of unity that the Godhead enjoys between Father and Son is the kind of unity Jesus has prayed we would enjoy. And though they are distinct persons, they are unity in diversity. One, though not the same. And so likewise, we, diverse though we may be, want unity. This is what Jesus died for. This is a blessing that comes from above. So the Bible does not call us to create unity. But the Bible does call us to maintain it. I won't show you now, but Ephesians 4. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like we're going to be like pit bulls that have locked jaw on unity. We're going to grip our bite on this thing. And no matter what, we are not letting this go because we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And anything that breaks up that unity, we're out on. If it's gossip, we want no part of it. 
If it's malice, we want no part of it. If it's slander, we want no part of it. If it's fractions or factions or cliques, we want no part of it because we want the good and pleasant blessing of unity. So because that's what we want, let me just show you one last verse and we'll be done. This is Philippians 2. And Paul is speaking to a church plant like us that loves one another, like we talked about last week. And he wants for them to be one. So here's what it says in Philippians 2, verse 2 and following. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. See that? All of us, same mind. Having the same love. All of us, same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. To that end, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, verse 5, among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." As those who see that blessing and the goodness and pleasantness of unity and who are eager to maintain it, can I give you just one word of application? How will we, Seven Mile Road, going into the next year and decade and century, be positioned in this fall so that we might pursue unity and love unity more? I just want to say one thing, and it's perhaps very oversimplified, but here it is. If we're going to be unified we need to keep looking away from self and looking to Jesus. That's what he says in this text. Do we want one heart, one mind, one accord, one voice? Then we have to keep fighting to look away from self and look to Jesus. Because I can promise you, and you know, nothing will destroy unity like 300 individuals all out for themselves. 300 individuals all out for their preferences and their opinions, and their feelings, and their names, and their rights, and their regards. And Paul is calling us, saying what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit. In humility, count the other person next to you more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. He's calling us to be an uncommonly unified people by being an uncommonly humble people. In humility, count the other more significant than yourself. Humility is what? It's this miracle. And the miracle of humility is not thinking less of yourself. Hear that? Because this was, it, it's light bulbs for me. Humility is not just being self-deprecating or self-demeaning or, or loathing self. That's not humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's the freedom to think of yourself less. That you're not preoccupied with yourself. You can literally have a conversation and your entire brain is not going, how am I coming off? How do I look in this? What am I going to say next? It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's the miracle of being for the other and not about self. And it's a miracle that God has to work in our hearts. That we would be so for one another and about one another that this is not about me. And this is not about you. How do we pursue unity? It's by all of us looking away from self. Because behind all the things that tear a church apart, it's self. Behind the gossip, behind the fractions, behind the faction, behind the cliques, behind the murmuring, behind the discontent, 
Behind all of that is self. And Paul says, look away from self and look to Jesus. Literally, doesn't he follow it by saying, if you want a picture of what does it look like to turn away from self and consider the interests of another better than yourself, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. The highest high became the lowest low. And he became a servant, and do you want to know what it's like to be selfless? Look to the cross. I mean, if all of us keep looking to Jesus, then we can't stay in gossip because we, we look to Jesus. We can't stay in unforgiveness because we look to Jesus. We can't stay in malice. And when we do, we repent of that because we keep looking to Jesus. I'll give you one illustration, right? I won't mention a certain football team because I'm told we use them too often. But say there was a football team that had a stadium somewhere in South Philly or so, right? And say there was 67,000 seats at this stadium. If you've ever been to such a football stadium, right? There's a sea of green jerseys, and, or, or any color jersey, but let's just say green, okay? And, and, and they, 67,000 people, somehow they scream at the same time, they sing at the same time, they boo at the same time. And I can promise you, because I've been to said stadium, and there's no effort of 67,000 people to coordinate. Like nobody turns to the right and to the left and goes, we're in, right? You're, you and I are good. There's nothing like that. Instead, 67,000 sets of eyes are looking at the same thing. And they love the same thing. And they're for the same thing. And they believe in the same thing. So that whatever happens to that same thing connects to them. If the same thing goes up, they all go up. And if the same thing goes down, they all go down. And these 67,000 eyes are brought in unity so long as they're looking to the same thing. A.W. Tozer had this quote. I'll read it for you. It says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. We want to love unity more. To that end, we need to look at Jesus more and see our high priest who carries us on his shoulders and bears us on his heart and the blessing of unity is mediated through him. And upon whom the showers of God's blessings fall on us like from the highest mountain to down to our life here in the city. If you believe that with me, don't you want to pray? Don't you want to pray and ask the Lord and say to the Lord, thank you. Just a sentence that says, thank you, Lord, for the years of unity we've enjoyed. Or don't you want to say to the Lord, God, help us. Save us from the things that would destroy unity so that we might be one in the years to come. Don't you want to ask us to, don't you want to ask the Lord to help us look to Jesus so that we might be like him? So we want to pray. So that's all I want to lead you in now is I'm just going to leave a moment for us to pray. Any of you that wants to pray can pray. Would you just pray out loud? And when you do, would you know you're praying for all of us? And if you're listening to someone who's praying, especially if you're not a great prayer yourself, you can literally just say an amen at the end, and that's your way of saying, God, what that person said, they said it for me too. I'm in, 100% in. That's what your amen 
to a prayer means. So let's pray. Let's praise the Lord for unity. Let's beg the Lord for more unity. Let's pray. After a few minutes, I'll close us.